The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Before we jump into our text this morning, uh, I would just like to refresh your memory by giving you the context of our passage. Why don't you go ahead and turn there? We're going to be going to Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 27 and going through the end of the chapter today. What we're talking about takes place on Tuesday of Passion Week. Two days earlier on what we traditionally call Palm Sunday, Jesus entered into Jerusalem, you remember, riding on a donkey, lowly, humble. And as he did, he entered to shouts of jubilee and his arrival was accompanied by a lot of singing and celebrating and fanfare from the crowds that were going to Jerusalem for the Passover. What happened next, though, seems almost anticlimactic. Once he arrives in the city, he goes to the temple courts, he looks around, and he leaves. That, to me, sounds almost ridiculously anticlimactic. But the following day, which was Monday of Passion Week, Jesus returned to those very same temple courts, probably to the very same spot where he had been looking around, and he begins to do much more than just look around. He, in a calculated manner, begins to flip over the tables of those who were selling animals and changing money. He blocked foot traffic for those who were turning the court of the Gentiles into a shortcut to the opposite side of town. He declared that the people who were there had turned God's house, which was supposed to be a house of prayer, into a den of robbers. In short, Jesus made quite a disturbance on Monday. Directly after this takes place, Mark tells us what's going on in the shadows who it is that's looking on and what's happening in their minds. He informs us in verse 18 that the chief priests and the scribes heard it and they were seeking for a way to destroy him for they feared him because all the crowds were astonished at his teaching. That's very strong language. You know, sometimes we use this term. We use a lot of words just kind of frivolously. I admit there are many times when I have jokingly said, for example, in basketball to my opponent, I'm about to destroy you. And then I usually get wiped out. I've said even to my wife in board games, I'm going to crush you. I will destroy you. I will annihilate you. These men are not using the term lightly. They're not using it jokingly. They are seeking to remove Jesus and to remove his teaching and to reject his authority, even if it meant killing him. But looking at the text, you'll notice there was nothing that they do that day. On Monday, there is no approach of Jesus. There is no attempt to attack him or accuse him. There's nothing that the scribes and the Pharisees do. But what we are about to read took place the following morning on Tuesday of Passion Week. It seems as though the chief priests and the scribes and the elders have probably been well preparing for this moment. It's likely that they burned a candle late into the night, focusing on how is it that we can trap Jesus tomorrow. So this is the way they approach him. So what we're about to see is their attempt to destroy Jesus. Please follow along, starting in verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. 
Was it, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Have you ever seen a Kung Fu movie? You know, they're ridiculous. They're always crazy. They're, they're absolutely insane. They might as well be a superhero movie. But perhaps the most ridiculous thing about a Kung Fu movie is the fact that there's one good guy who's standing there and surrounding him are 50 to 70 bad guys, but they attack him one at a time. Why do they do that? It's absurd. Why don't they just go at the same time? Well, what we're going to see taking place here in the end of this chapter and all throughout chapter 12 is the fact that there are roughly 70 people in the Sanhedrin and they are coming as an attack against Jesus. But they are doing it one at a time in a very calculated manner. And Jesus is going to stand boldly before them and never back down. This is just the first attack of many that come at Jesus as they seek to condemn him. But what we will see at the end of it is that Jesus is the one that stands firm and stands strong and all of their arguments fall flat to the ground. At the very center of many of these discussions will be the temple. The temple was the symbolic center of the Jewish religion and rightfully so. This is where they were called to gather together and do the most important aspects of the worship God commanded them to do back in the Old Testament. But Jesus is in the process of explaining that that system was designed as a temporary measure to help the people properly anticipate Jesus himself. But the people had perverted God's commands. They had so drastically changed them that the God-man, Jesus Christ, the one who is the fulfillment of all the old covenant, is standing directly in front of them. And instead of embracing him or adoring him, or worshiping him, the one who is the center of all accurate, true temple worship, they were seeking to destroy him. That's why when Jesus leaves the temple, back all the way uh, in Mark chapter 13, verse 1, that's why he says about it these things. He says, it says, And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. All throughout chapter 12, he will be in the temple. The beginning of chapter 13, when he walks out, he will declare the time of worship in this place has come to an end. And he is going to replace the temple with himself. What we will be doing this morning is very simple. I'm going to do a running commentary through verses 27 through 33, and then we're going to press this text homeward on our hearts with some closing application. Let's start by getting to know the antagonists this morning. Take another look at verse 27. And they came to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and scribes and elders came to him. What? Who are these people? We've never seen this exact group approach Jesus before. Now, we're going to be jumping around a little bit in the text this morning. So most of the verses will be on the screen for you. I would encourage you to stay here in Mark chapter 11 uh, as we'll consider these verses. But as we consider others, I would encourage you to take a peek at the screen. So who are these people? These three groups of people listed here, the, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. 
Well, the chief priests were the most venerable of the Levitical priests that served in the temple. These were the wisest, probably the most uh, official, the oldest of the priests who had served in the Levitical priesthood. And the scribes were the men who made copies of the Old Testament. They would make copies over and over and over every day. And if you write down the words of God, eventually you will remember the words of God. Therefore, they knew the Bible better than anyone else alive, except for Jesus, for they did not understand its meaning. So when people had a dispute because the law of Moses was the law that ordered those people, the Jewish people, they would come to the scribes. They, and many times in the New Testament, when you see that there was a lawyer present, the actual word is scribe, but it's translated as lawyer for us to understand in our modern day uh, vernacular. And then the elders were men who were men of the community that had been recognized as benefactors of society. These were wealthy men. These were powerful men, men who had great authority and often had many servants. They were mostly at this time made up of Pharisees, but they did not fall into either of the other two categories. They were not scribes. They were not priests. They were wealthy businessmen who had been placed in this position of authority. And these three groups of people collectively made up what was known as the Sanhedrin. They were the official ruling body, the the organizing structure over the people of Jerusalem. And they ordered all aspects of religious Jewish life. The Roman government had allowed them and granted them special control over the Jewish people. They allowed them because the laws of Moses were much more constricting than the laws of the Roman government. They allowed them to do whatever they wanted as long as it did not conflict with Roman law. So these 70 men all met together regularly to function as a body of people that would pass judgment on anyone that would step outside of their rules. And they would often ban these people from the temple and from synagogue worship. We see this, for example, happening in John chapter 9. This would have been one of the worst fates that a Jewish person could receive. Imagine it. You're removed from the temple. You're removed from worship. You can no longer go with your family. You can no longer worship God the way that he commanded you to in the Old Testament. You were no longer allowed to obey God. And even if you desired to, if you had broken what they believed to be the laws, then you could not worship God even if you desired to. This meant that the, they would be ostracized from the community. They would even be viewed as a traitor to the Jewish people if the Sanhedrin rejected you. They would be treated like a leper or a tax collector if the Sanhedrin had rejected you. And ruling over this entire body was the 71st man. He was the high priest. It's very unlikely that all 71 of these men were present in our account today. Most likely it's a smaller group of the 71 men. Many of them would have had responsibilities during the Passover to be preparing lambs and to be working in the temple. So it's likely that many of the people here are the scribes, not the priests and probably not the elders, but we know there's at least some of the priests and some of the elders present. But just like the bad guys in a Kung Fu flick, we're about to see that Jesus is going to stand firm in the midst of a terrible delegation of men surrounding him. Look at verse 28. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? When they say these things, what are they referencing? It's certainly referring back to the actions of Jesus the previous day, right? He went into the temple, he began flipping over tables. They view this as their domain. This is their place of authority. This is their jurisdiction. And now, Jesus... Who gives you the right to do this? 
Who has told you that this is acceptable behavior? What makes you think that you are able or allowed to do these things here in this public place? So by saying these things loudly and clearly in a public arena, the most public arena in all of Jerusalem, these men were making it clear they did not accept Jesus. They are making it clear to everyone who is there, this man is not under our control. We do not sanction the things that he is doing. And they were just as angry as the people whose tables had been flipped over, if not more so. Secondly, we see that they're trying to intimidate Jesus. They're trying to intimidate him or make him back down. Just back off, man. Back away. Get out of here. Don't do this again. But Jesus, like a lamb surrounded by wolves, stood his ground boldly. And thirdly, I want you to see they were seeking to trap Jesus. They're trying to lock him into a corner here so that he would answer in such a way that would make him look foolish or blasphemous. For example, if Jesus would have answered that he received his authority from Rome, what do you think the people would have done? They hate the Romans. And this is the time of year when all of the people of Israel would be most nationalistic. What if he said, I got my authority from the Roman government. They allow me to do this. No, the people would have rejected everything that he had to say. That's what the Pharisees were hoping for. Or what if Jesus had appealed to his status as a rabbi? Then they would have told him that he was a foolish backwater boy that needed to go back to school and that he had a lot to learn from them. Please notice, the question here has everything to do with authority. But what I want you to notice is this is not the first time the question of authority has been a sticking point between these people and Jesus. If we jump all the way back to the beginning of Mark's gospel account, all the way back to chapter one, we will see the people's reception of Jesus when he first began to teach. Notice what it says in Mark chapter one, verse 22. It should be up here for you on the screen. And they were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one who had authority, but it doesn't just stop there and not as the scribes. The people in their mind had driven a clear line between Jesus' teaching and the teaching of the scribes. This was a matter of conversation. And it's a matter of conversation that got to the ears of the scribes. They did not, un, they did not, this did not go unnoticed. They recognized that their authority was now being undermined. They recognized that they were in danger of losing their position as the chief communicators of truth to the people. So, They went on the offensive and they attempted a smear campaign to scare away the people, to make them leave Jesus and ignore his teaching. Listen to their accusation that we see in Mark chapter 3, verse 22. Same people. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, that is the devil, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. Where is he getting his authority? It's not from us. It's clearly not from God. must be from the devil, right? They're seeking to discredit Jesus. They're declaring that his authority is from Satan. They could not deny his power. All they could do was reject the idea that he had the power and authority from God. They had seen the effects of his awesome miracles. So they accused him of being filled with power that could only come from the supernatural in one other place, the devil. These were the same scribes from Jerusalem that later attempted to discredit Jesus in Mark chapter 7 by accusing the disciples of breaking the laws of God because they didn't wash their hands before they ate. Now, washing your hands before you eat, good. Washing your hands because you have to before God or it's a sin, not true. And Jesus teaches them and reminds them that it is what goes out of the heart that makes a man a sinner, not what goes into the body. 
As you can see, Jesus had many encounters with these very same scribes over the past three years of his ministry. And now everything has come to a head and they're in the temple and these scribes get up the nerve along with all of their other buddies to walk up to Jesus and ask this question to reject his authority. The Sanhedrin had all of the information that they needed. They had everything they needed to know where he got his authority. I mean, think about the things that he had done. Think about the things they knew about. He had cast out demons with nothing more than a word. We see this in Mark chapter one, verses 16 through 20. He forgave sins. Think of that. Who can do that? There's the question in that same passage. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Who is he claiming to be? Mark chapter two, verse one to 12. He claimed to be the Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, who is it that you are worshiping through the Sabbath? It's me, guys. Why are you accusing me of breaking it? You're supposed to be worshiping me. That's Mark 2, 23 through 28. He said that those who obey God's will are part of his family. Don't miss this here. If you do the will of God, you are part of my family. In the Old Testament, does it not teach that doing the will of God makes you part of God's family? What does this tell you? Jesus is saying, that's Mark 3, 31 through 35. He claimed, or he calmed the storm. Now, the Jewish people were terrified of the sea. Jesus goes out onto this boat in the middle of a great storm. He calms the entire storm with a simple phrase. We see that in Mark 4, 35 through 41. He fed a crowd of roughly 12,000 people, 5,000 men, most likely roughly 12 to 20,000 people by multiplying five loaves and two fish. Imagine this. Mark chapter six, verse seven through 13 tells us this story. It's likely that every person in Israel had at least one family member who had been fed by the miraculous reproduction of food that Jesus did on this event. He declared that he was the law's true interpreter. Mark eight, one through 10. And he, as we saw two weeks ago, goes into the temple and he takes it upon himself to absolutely abolish the extortion and robbery that was taking place within it. He took it upon himself to do what the theologians call cleansing the temple. That's Mark eleven twelve through 26. So who is this man? Who is this Jesus? If he is not the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, is he not the one who rightfully rules and reigns over all the earth? Jesus did not need the permission of anyone to do anything at any time. He is the eternal second person of the Trinity who always did the will of the Father. Where did he get his authority? That's where he got his authority. But do not forget what Jesus told his disciples one chapter back in Mark chapter 10, verses 33 and 34. Remember what he told his disciples? He said, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to whom? to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. He knows what's coming. The divine King of all the universe, the ruler of all the world, this God man who created all things is standing and looking in the eyes of the Sanhedrin, knowing that these men will never change their hearts. And knowing that these men will pursue him unto death, yet he stands his ground and he answers them with the most brilliant answer that could ever be given. Look again to verses 29 and 30. <clears throat> and Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. I would love to know his tone of voice, 
his facial expression here. I'm going to ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. This is, this is absolutely marvelous. Proverbs chapter 26, verses 4 and 5 that we read together earlier tells us, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. And then it tells us in the very next verse, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. What this is teaching us is that there are times when it is appropriate to answer a fool according to his folly. And there are times when it's appropriate not to do so. But Jesus, as wise as a serpent and as harmless as a dove, displays his infinite brilliance because he does both simultaneously. Think back to the last time you were in a classroom setting. For some of you, that was like two days ago. Uh, For some of you, that was like 50 years ago. But think back to those times when you were in a classroom. And who is it that says, answer me? Is it the student or the teacher? Who is it that says to the, to the room, I have something to say, now you answer. I have a question, you answer me. Only the authority figure can demand an answer. Jesus does this not once, but twice. I will ask you one question, answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. He says it twice to these men who view themselves as the authority in this situation. And Jesus, without even answering the question, shows them his own authority. He gives them stipulations. I will answer if. So what did the Sanhedrin do? Look to verse 31. And they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? Why would they not say this? For they were afraid of the people. For they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. Do you see why they're so stuck? Do you see the corner Jesus has backed them into? They probably stayed up all night trying to find a way to corner Jesus. And with one turn of phrase, he turns the entire table on them. Jesus has placed them in an impossible situation. Notice that it all goes right back to John the Baptist. Remember John had been preaching what? The message of repentance. His baptism always came as an outward show or an act of someone who had believed his message about repentance, about turning away from your sinful way of living and turning back to God. Yet the Sanhedrin had rejected the message of John. That's why John said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. Therefore produce fruit worthy or in keeping with repentance. The Pharisees didn't get it. They did not repent and they were not baptized. There can be no doubt that the bulk of John's message was repentance, but don't miss the purpose of his ministry, of his message. Don't miss why he was doing all of these things. Mark doesn't give us a lot of detail in terms of the teaching of John the Baptist. In fact, in the whole book of Mark, there is only one time that we have a quote from all of John's preaching ministry. And it comes to us in Mark chapter one, verses seven and eight. So what is it that Mark wants us to know is the pinnacle, the center focus of all of John's teaching. Here it is. And after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals, I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. 
The whole crux of his message was the fact there is a greater one coming. I am just here to prepare the way. His entire ministry was dedicated to the one who was greater that would come after him. John recognized that he was the herald. He was the one who was intended by God to be a forerunner of the greater one who was promised. The Sanhedrin certainly knew John's teachings. They had battled with him. They had opposed him. And they knew that they could not say his baptism was from heaven because they knew if they did, they would incriminate themselves because they did not follow John's words. Well, if it is from heaven, why didn't you listen? Oh, Sanhedrin, if, if John's baptism was from heaven, why didn't you get down there in the water too? Why did you not repent? But even more significantly, if they recognized John's message came from heaven, they would also have to recognize that Jesus' message was from heaven because John pointed everyone to Jesus. Therefore, Jesus is telling them that the answer is right in front of them. Do you want to know where authority comes from? If you answer your question, if you answer my question, you will answer the question yourself. If you say that the, the baptism of John came from heaven, then you are already telling yourselves, my authority is also from heaven. But the public could not receive the other answer. They did not want to say, no, it doesn't come from heaven. Of course, they believed it didn't come from heaven. They rejected the idea that his message was from God. Of course, if they did believe it came from God, they would have gone down into the waters. They would have been baptized, but they don't. But they refuse to answer. Why will they not answer in the negative? It's because their goal is to discredit Jesus. They want the public to ignore him or reject him or think nothing of him. But the public loved John. He was dear to them. He was a mysterious and enlightening figure to them. They liked him. They liked his message. And they believed, as it says here, that he was a genuine prophet that had been sent to them by God himself. And they perceived that his death was an unjust murder by an immoral ruler that they did not like. And if the Sanhedrin said that John's authority derived from man, they might as well have come out and said, we believe John deserved to have his head cut off. That would not go over well with the crowds. So a negative answer to Jesus' question would have meant that they would have lost the very authority that they were so desperately seeking to gain. So they simply say, we, we don't know. We don't know. So in this situation, who looks bright? Who looks brilliant? Who's the genius? Who's the one who is the great teacher? In all of the midst of the people, Jesus stands and boldly says to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is an amazing passage. It displays to us the wisdom of Jesus. But this is also a very practical passage for us. There's a lot of, of learning that we could do from Jesus here. So for the remainder of our time this morning, I'm actually going to walk us through Four practical ways that this should radically change and overhaul your life. Let's start with the most surface level of the applications and then we'll dig deeper one at a time. Application number one, answer a fool according to their folly. There are absolutely things that we can learn from Jesus here about answering a fool. But I want you to know there are also things that we cannot replicate from Jesus. Because our flesh will not be able to do the things that he was able to do. I want you to remember that Jesus here initiates this conversation with these opponents, knowing their hearts. 
Unlike Jesus, we don't know the hearts of the people that we talk to. We don't know what's going on in their minds. We cannot read their thoughts, but Jesus did. For example, look at Mark 2, verses 6 through 8. In it, we read, Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And what does Jesus do? It says, that, notice, they don't say these things out loud. Where are these things taking place? It says, in their hearts, these things are taking place. But verse 8 says, And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they questioned thus within themselves, he said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? He knows! You and I don't have that advantage. When we're discussing with somebody, when we are seeking to answer someone, we don't know how they'll respond. Jesus did. So since we don't know what people are thinking or what they are feeling, we need to be very, very careful about how we speak. The best way for us to get a better understanding about what's going on in someone's heart or their mind is to ask question after question to clarify what it is that they are saying. And I'm, I'm going to tell you one of the most radical things you will ever hear. You need to listen to them. Unbelievers, atheists, Buddhists, Jehovah's Witnesses, I don't care who they are. Listen to them. And I mean really listen to them. Hear what they have to say. You don't know what's going on in their mind like Christ did. You need to hear it. What is going on in their heart? Where is their trust? Listen to their words. But there are definitely principles that we can and we should apply in terms of our communication with these unbelievers, the way we speak to them. In particular, this passage helps us to understand how we should respond when our faith is attacked. This is not a gospel presentation that Jesus is giving here. He's just walking along in the temple, not, not even teaching at the time. And the people accuse him and approach him and ask him this question. This is not an open dialogue that Jesus is having with the Sanhedrin. This is an all-out assault on the person and work of Christ. Some of you have experienced attacks on your faith. People come to you and they accuse you. And they fight against your beliefs. Oftentimes, these attacks come from people that are close to us in some way, such as like a family member or a longtime friend. They just don't understand how you could possibly be living the way that you're living. The message of the gospel, the message of the cross is foolishness to them. They see your life as strange and unusual. And so they begin to accuse and fight and, and argue against what you've done. They cannot understand how you can possibly say, this is my authority. I do what I do because God said it here in his word. They cannot understand how you can believe that God created the world. They cannot believe how you believe in the virgin birth or the resurrection. Those are, uh, those are supernatural things. You believe in that stuff? They don't get it. And there are times when people will come to you with genuine questions and they will ask you about those things. They will actually have open dialogue with you where you can converse with them. But there are other times when people's goal is just to cause you to reject what the Bible says. There are times when those people will attack you and fight against you having no desire for open dialogue whatsoever. I think this is where we need to learn from Jesus' example in this text. As Christians, we all too often take the position of defense. We stand back and say, okay, you take the high ground. I'm just going to respond. You keep talking and I'll just answer. We're all too pleased to simply answer the questions that are thrown at us, even though the accuser is not willing to answer them themselves. 
It can be incredibly helpful for us to listen and see what Jesus did here and just turn questions back on those who ask them. Not in a mean way. I don't think Jesus is being a jerk here. I think he is loving them by showing them, if you just answer this question correctly, you will have the answer that you want. Ironically, in my experience, most atheists, most unbelievers, they don't have sufficient answers to their own questions about God or reality. I once read a book by a man who said that one of his college roommates once accused him of being an idiot because he believed in God. The man simply responded by asking his roommate if he believed in good and evil. Do you believe that good exists? Do you believe that evil exists? And the atheist said, of course I do. There are evil things in the world. This man who he was speaking to was a Jewish man. He goes into some examples of the Holocaust. Of course, that's evil. Okay, then who decides what's good and evil? Whoa, he had never thought of that before. Eventually, that man's roommate became became a Christian. And it all began by turning an attack into an opportunity for genuine dialogue. Now, please do not fear these kinds of conversations. Please do not fear them or cower away from them. God brings these controversies into our lives for our good and for his glory. And sometimes they can be turned into genuine dialogue. And sometimes we just need to close our mouths. But don't always get stuck playing defense. Learn how to speak lovingly and thoughtfully to those that come against you with attacks. If you want a good place to start in learning how to have good Christian dialogue, I encourage you and recommend the book to you, Fool's Talk, Recovering the Art of Christian Persuasion by Os Guinness. It's incredibly helpful, beneficial in terms of learning how to have these kinds of good conversations. But I encourage you, think carefully about how to approach these kinds of attacks. But that also leads us to our second application. Don't answer a fool according to their folly. Notice that Jesus never did answer their question. He refuses to. There are times when it's appropriate for you and I to do the very same thing. There are times when someone will come against you seeking to destroy your faith. And they're not interested in a genuine discussion at all. There is not even any pretense that they're trying to understand you or where you're coming from. This is especially true on social media. I could be missing the boat here, but I'll be honest with you. I have never, ever, not even one time, never, ever seen anyone read a post of an argument on Facebook and fall to their knees in repentance. It just doesn't happen. People's response are negative. They are defensive. People want to fight back. I believe that there is a manner in which we can live publicly, even on social media, and we can live openly and have public disagreements and discussions that result in growth and sanctification. However, I don't think most of us know how to do that. Broadly speaking, the Christian community comes off just as venomous and ravenous as the unbelievers do online. Application two is simply this. Seek to grow in discernment about times when it is appropriate not to answer a fool according to their folly. I think we all have a lot to to learn in this area. Application number three. This is specifically an application for any who are here with us that don't know Jesus in a saving way. I want you to recognize Christ's authority over your life. The reason that the Sanhedrin said, we don't know, is quite simply because they were unwilling to know. If you don't know if Jesus is king, it's simply due to the fact that you're unwilling to know. I encourage you, honestly engage with the word of God. Here's what it says about you and me. 
The Bible teaches that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. It teaches us that the wages of our sin is death. You and I have worked really hard for a paycheck that reads death. We have put in the work and the response is, the result is, the proper result is our punishment. But we naturally think that we are good people. We naturally think that we're better than the next guy, or at least we're in the top half. If we're going to weigh it out, I'm, I'm mostly good. I've never really killed anybody or robbed a bank or anything. But the Bible teaches that God is perfectly holy. It teaches that he is absolutely perfect and pure. That is why even the slightest sin from God's perspective is considered infinite cosmic treason in the courtroom of heaven. If you are not a Christian, first of all, I want to thank you for being here today. I am so happy that you are here. And whether you agree with this or know this or not, God brought you here. And he has brought you here to hear these words right now. And right now you're being confronted with his word. And so I want you to know that you have to determine what to do with him. That is the one difference between people's eternal destiny, heaven and hell, is what you do with Jesus Christ. Sometimes people believe themselves to be too enlightened, to be too philosophical or highly educated to listen to the word of God, to listen to the words of Christ. But what is in probably the most famous writings of Plato, the Republic, Plato described what a true philosopher is like. He says, quote, the philosopher has no taste for falsehood. That is, they are completely unwilling to admit, which means to accept what is false, but they hate it while cherishing the truth. That's what true philosophy is, according to Plato. I think he knows something about philosophy. Consider our text this morning. Notice that when the Sanhedrin were discussing how to answer Jesus, they never debated the facts. They never actually sought to answer the question, is it true? Where did John's baptism come from? They didn't look at it theologically. They didn't care to. Their response was pragmatic and political. Had everything to do with what people will think of me. They were concerned with how answering the question might result in them losing their own way of life. And most particularly, they were afraid of losing what they perceived to be their own power. J.C. Ryle explains it well this way when he wrote, it's a long quote, so I'm going to have it up here for you. He wrote, it is a melancholy fact that dishonesty like this is far from being uncommon among unconverted people. There are thousands who evade appeals to their conscience by answering by answers which are not true. When pressed to attend to their souls, they say things which they know are not correct. They love the world and their own way, and like our Lord's enemies, are determined not to give them up. But like them, are also ashamed to say the truth. And so, they answer exhortation to repentance and decision by false excuses. Rejecting the authority of Jesus Christ is not being open-minded. It is a denial of truth, which can best be called self-deceit. And I'm calling you, if you don't know Jesus Christ today, I'm calling you to hear the good news of the gospel. That even though you and I are sinners against God, we have rebelled against him, we have rejected him, we have done everything necessary to earn judgment from him. God sent his own son so that we could have a right relationship with him. So that our sins would be paid for at the cross. God must punish sin. He is a good and just judge who cannot rightfully let the guilty go free, just like we would not expect a judge in our court systems to let a guilty man walk. 
But the Bible teaches that Jesus took the sin of every person who would ever believe. He took it on himself and he paid for it so that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. The Bible teaches this, that if you trust in Christ, that he is paid for your way on the cross. And then he rose again so you might be justified, just as Mike was saying earlier, so that you might be justified, given his righteousness, counted as righteousness, that his righteousness would be imputed to you because you can never become righteous on your own. Therefore, you will not be guilty of the penalty and you will be brought into the family of God. If you're here today and you do not know Jesus in a saving way, please don't leave without talking to myself, to Mike, to anyone else that you've seen up here. We want you to know Jesus in a saving way. Please don't respond like the Sanhedrin did. Please repent and believe. Which brings us to our final application, which is this. It's to believers. Believers, I want to tell you the same thing. Christ has authority over your life. The authority of Christ does not only involve your initial repentance and conversion to Christianity. James Edward gets this exactly right when he says, the characteristic of Jesus that left the most lasting impression. What do you think it would be? His love, his mercy, his kindness. The most, the characteristic of Jesus that left the most lasting impression on his followers and caused the greatest offense to his opponents was his exousia which is the Greek word, which means his sovereign freedom and magisterial authority. James chapter four, verse seven teaches us that we must quote, submit yourselves to God. He's saying that to believers. In first Peter chapter five, verse six, the apostle Peter, one who is standing there, who listened to Jesus say this to the Sanhedrin. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that the, at the proper time, he may exalt you. Humble yourselves, where? Under the mighty hand of God, under his authority. In Ephesians chapter five, Paul writes an entire argument about how husbands and wives should live together. That whole argument is rooted and founded in the idea that God is the authority and the church is to submit to him. All of his arguments hinge on that fact. Romans chapter 12 verses one and two teaches us that our very lives are supposed to be given as a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice means an ongoing, never ending, lifelong experience of giving everything up to him and recognizing his authority over us. First Corinthians chapter six, verse 19 and 20 reminds us that you are not your own. Who's he talking to? He's talking to you. If you are saved, you are not your own. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So let's close out this sermon by asking this question to ourselves. Are there parts, are there aspects of my life that are standing in defiance to Christ like the Sanhedrin were who were circled around him that day? Can you say honestly that every single facet of your existence is worshiping him in everything that you do? Do you worship your king? Do you live with his authority in mind? Does your checkbook say that you do? Does your browser history show that you do? Do your idle thoughts bring him glory? Do your interactions with your children show that you're shepherding them as Christ shepherds his church? Do your conversations at work reveal that you are striving after his holiness? Or are you like the Sanhedrin seeking to gain people's approval? 
There are many other questions like this that we could continue on with. Today is a great day for us to identify those areas in our life where we are not currently in submission to him. And instead of standing boldly like the the Sanhedrin, rejecting him and having a hard heart against him to repent, he is your authority. But if you're in Christ, I want you to also know that he is your friend. He is your king, but he is also your brother. That he came, Jesus came to go to the cross knowing that we are stubborn, hard-hearted, arrogant, sinful people who would constantly fail him. Oh, be thankful, as we sang earlier, that he will give us clean hands, for he is faithful and just to forgive us all of our unrighteousness if we will only confess those sins to him. So I encourage you, today, let your hearts be changed by his word. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your counsel, for your wisdom. I thank you that your word is like a light to us. It guides our path. It shows us the direction to go. God, I pray that today, if you would, that you would change our hearts, that we might be able to communicate in love with great truth to those who don't know you. I pray that we would have wisdom and discernment about how to respond to detractors and opponents of the cross who attack our faith. I pray, Lord, that you would help us know when to answer a fool and when not to. And God, I pray that you would especially help us to understand Christ's authority in our lives. I pray, Lord, for those who are here that don't know you in a saving way, Lord. I ask that you would help them to see that Jesus is king over their life, whether or not they acknowledge it. And Lord, I pray they would acknowledge it. I pray that you would bring them to a place of repentance, that you would change their hearts and give them faith. And God, I pray for us who know you, that we would walk in the light as you are in the light that we would live in full submission and worship to you, that every facet of our life would be fully surrendered today. Lord, I ask that we would never stand in opposition to Christ like the Sadducees that gathered there that day. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his work. We thank you for who he is. Lord, we pray that you would please help us to have a greater appreciation of that each day. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.